One Hope Church. All right, welcome, especially those of you who are visiting, uh, first or second time here. Um, we're so glad you're here, and please make yourself at home if you need anything. Please let us know. Um, we are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah uh, this morning. If you have your um, Bibles um, with you, then you start at the beginning from Genesis and work forward. You'll find um, some King Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, Esther, Job, Ezra, Nehemiah, and... Um, so we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. I'll give a little bit of background and just so we have the setting uh, for today. And so in this time, the people of Israel have been um, you know, taken off into captivity. There was the Babylonian captivity, and then um, the Medes and Persians defeated the Babylonians. And so it's really what we call the Persian Empire um, at this time. And so Nehemiah finds himself about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, and when his um, people, he, people from there come, um, you know, he, he calls them, you know, his brethren, his Jewish brethren, um, and he asks, what's the state of Jerusalem? And they tell him, you know, the wall is, has been, you know, demolished, the gates are burned, um, you know, things are bad, you know, there. And it, it hurts his heart. Um, we see him go to the Lord in prayer, um, and in fasting, he confesses his own sins, he confesses the sins of his people, and he asks God for help. Um, a few months passed, and he's in front of King Artaxerxes. He was the cupbearer um, at that time. You know, his job is to drink the wine first. They see if he dies, he doesn't die. The king can now drink the wine. You know, that's part of his role. But because he's there, he has this close proximity to the king, and it's actually a you know, it's an important and respected, you know, position. It's a little more involved than just, you know, handing a cup of wine. But, um, you know, he hadn't been sad before the king before that. But at this point, he is sad before the king. And the king says, you know, this isn't a sickness. This is sadness of heart. You know, what's going on, Nehemiah? Uh, we talked about how that was even dangerous in itself because the king can just be like, I don't like sadness in my presence. You're dead, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. So that's... Um, you know, a, a risky thing, but he opens his heart about what the case is. It says, you know, he, he, you know, he, he was afraid, he prayed, and he spoke. Um, and so that's just a, a great lesson for us is when we're in, in situations of difficulty, um, you know, that, that we pray first and then we, we take the act of bravery um, that is necessary in the moment. Um, and so the Lord has obviously worked in that situation, and King Artaxerxes gives him everything he needs, gives him permission to go back to Jerusalem, um, gives him wood, gives him letters that he's going to need as he crosses through different territories, and he goes back, he takes an evaluation of the city, and they begin to rebuild. And there is opposition from the outside, because there are you know, neighboring peoples who you know, hate the Jewish people, and do not want to see their city rebuilt. They want to be able to dominate um, in that region, and, and they don't want to deal with the Jewish people, and they don't want to be friendly um, towards them. And so they oppose, are constantly opposing 
you know, the work. So here we are in chapter 5. So we've seen um, problems from the outside. And in chapter 5, we've got problems from the inside. And so um, we're going to read about that and, and try to apply that this morning. So let's go to Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin Nehemiah chapter 5. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here this evening, this morning, um, to be in your word, to look into it and to study it. But we thank you most of all that you love us and gave us your son Jesus uh, to go to the cross to pay our debt that we could not pay and that there is life um, in your son's name for all who call on him. And Lord, we pray that um, we would be encouraged by your word this morning um, to do what is right and what is just and to call others um, to that as well. And so we ask for your help this morning in your name, Jesus. Amen. It says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and vineyards. So that's a, that's a big problem. Nehemiah now has a, has a problem from the inside, from his people that he has to deal with. Um, again, having some historical context is, is helpful to understand what's going on you know, in this situation. So if we remember when Israel was first formed, when they had you know, come out of Egypt, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, um, they're brought eventually, you know, there's, a, there's um, a lot that goes on there along the way, but they, they are finally in the promised land, and the land is divided by tribe. So it's divided by tribe first, and then in each tribe it's divided by family. And so they were instructed not to sell their land. Um, you weren't able to sell land, but you could lease land out. And the, land, the value of the land would be for the, between that date and the number of years until the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, where they would let the land rest extra, that's what they were supposed to do, um, and to have celebration, the land would then revert back to the family. And they could, of course, decide, yes, we'll, we'll lease it again, we'll lease it for so many more years, um, or we'll you know, lease it till the next Jubilee, or they could say, you know, no, we're not going to lease it again, we're going to you know, use it um, ourselves and in this, you know, however which way they, they decide, decide to do that. But this was designed to keep families from being ruined by the bad decisions of one generation. So you have someone who, you know, ends up in a, you know, a substance abuse problem and, you know, would want to then, you know, think only of himself in the short term and make decisions based on that, that wouldn't be allowed to damage that family like on a permanent basis. Okay, so he wouldn't be able just to like, well, I'm selling this land. He couldn't sell it. You could only lease it, um, was what was supposed to be done 
in those times. Now, were they always following the law? You know, that's a whole other you know, question. Um, but, you know, they had in their law, this stays in the family. Okay, and so they were supposed to, you know, do those sort of things to ensure that they didn't have um, large numbers of, of poor people in their, in their country. Um, that they, the system was designed to be so that, you know, everyone could at least have a certain level of prosperity. Of course, some would do better with their land or land that they leased than others would based on their work ethic and abilities and those things. But there was, you know, this was kind of like their built-in safety net for generations of families, okay? And this isn't, the point of this message today isn't to say, well, you know, we should do X today as far as how they did land and things like that. That's not the point. The point is to understand the historical context. That's the main thing that I'm trying to get here. We'll talk about our practical applications um, later on. So now there's another factor in this where um, you also have the Persian Empire so they're, they're having to collect funds. You know, each family's got to gotta pay their taxes. You know, so they've got an, an additional, you know, tax, you know, to pay. So that's another thing in this, in this situation. So here's kind of how this is going down. Um, you have a time of, of famine. So the need to buy grain, so first you have a time of famine. Second, the need to buy grain causes people to mortgage their lands, vineyards, and, and houses. So basically they're taking like what we would call today like a lien, you know, on, on your house, um, you know, to secure um, a debt. And so then that consolidation of power and wealth goes into fewer hands. Then there's the need to pay the king's tax. So there's a further consolidation of power and wealth. And it gets so bad for some families that they end up, even end up selling their sons and daughters into servitude for these other, you know, the, to the families that have consolidated power. Kind of like, well, what else can you give? So, and then they have an inability to redeem those sold because they don't control their, their lands. They're, they're, what they would be able to use as a resource to redeem their, you know, out of slavery, uh, they can't. And so you kind of have this cycle where things are just getting, you know, worse and worse. And there's a lot that's contributed to that. There's the famine that contributes to that. There's the king's tax that contributes to that. But there are people who are looking to take advantage of the difficult time. And so Nehemiah, in verse 6, he says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. So that's strong. You know, Nehemiah hears this is going on. Because he's been focused at this point. You know, he's, he's recently arrived. And he's focused on the wall. Um, and so that has been, you know, his focus. And so now he hear, you know, and he's got all these external problems that he's dealt with. And now it's brought to him, there's this big internal problem. And so, you know, Nehemiah accuses them of breaking the law when he says that they're exacting usury. 
Because in Leviticus 25, 35, 36, it says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord you God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now that's powerful. Because basically what, there, what he's told there, you know, it's, um, you know, don't take advantage is what, what the law said for them. You know, don't take advantage of your, of your brother who falls into poverty. Instead, you know, help him. Don't say, well, I'm going to give you food, but then I'm going to make a profit off of it. You can say, I'm going to give you food, but, you know, next season when your crops come back, you can pay me back, but it wasn't supposed to be with interest, and, it's, and especially this type of interest that is, ex- is excessive. Yeah, and when we talk about like you know human slavery today or like bonded labor, that's how a lot of times that that works. You know, wealthy people um, come into a situation and say, "Hey, we can give your family this money, but you need to." You know, come and work for us. And when they get there, then the amount of interest that they're paying it means that the debt will never be paid off. And so, while the those in power in that situation are able to say, "Well, we didn't, you know, make this person become our slave, or this, that, or the other thing," the system was designed as such, and they knew what they were doing, and they were taking advantage of desperation and ignorance. You know, and I think you know, so many times people want to try to justify themselves with technicalities. They want to justify themselves with technicalities. But they know what they're doing is wrong and that they are taking advantage on the weakness and poverty of others. That's always wrong. It's just always wrong. And it doesn't matter the historical context. That's to take to you know intentionally take advantage of the weakness and desperation of others is always wrong. And it especially is harmful when it's done under the illusion of help. <coughs> you know, there's a betrayal in that as well. And so, you know, the Lord's reason for this is. You know, in addition to just doing what is right, he's like, you know, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know, you were 400 years as slaves. You were taken advantage of for all those generations. Now, don't go around and turn and do that to another. Because I brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And with that, it's implied, like, you know, God is saying, if he is God, then you need to do things his way. And, and that's just something I think we really need to grab hold of. The, the nation of Israel, these people, they needed to remember who, who was in charge and who they were accountable to. 
Well, today, folks, the same thing is true, you know, for us. It doesn't matter what system, economic system we're in, what, what, what year we live in, what our cultural, you know, norms are like. We answer to one, ultimately. In verse 8, Nehemiah says, And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? So what Nehemiah is able to say there, because remember, he, when he's in Susa, when he's in, in, in you know, the Persian capital, when he is cupbearer to the king, and, and he has resources, as he has opportunity, and you know, his Jewish brethren are, are, on, um, you know, are, are for sale, he is redeeming them. What does that mean? He is paying the money that the people are asking, he is making a financial deal there, and then he's giving those people their freedom. That's what he's actively doing. That's what he has, I mean, that's, well, let's say this, that's what he has done. And now, I mean, you can imagine that anger of, you know, I'm among these foreign nations, you know, from foreigners in, in this foreign land, I am buying my Jewish brethren. And in Jerusalem, we have Jewish people, our Jewish people are buying other Jewish people. Like, that would have to be, like, beyond infuriating. Beyond infuriating. Like, he has a, a right here to have a, I mean, there's such thing as righteous anger. You know, you can be angry and it be sinful, and you can be angry and it's not sinful. Now, what you do with that anger, that can also be sinful or not sinful, right? But just the emotion of anger isn't, by itself, sin. There's, you know, the motivation behind, you know, what, for what cause, for what reason, you know, we're angry. And then what we do with that anger, we can sin in a couple different ways there. But just the emotion of anger is not sinful. And we should be righteously angry when people are taken advantage of. We should be rightfully angry at bonded labor, human trafficking, these sort of things that still are very prevalent in our world today. Like, we shouldn't be able to hear about that or to look into that and just go, man, that's too bad. You know, that, it should get a little bit more out of us than that, folks. It should get a little bit more out of us than that. It should cause us to be angry and to desire to see justice done and redemption of people. But there's some other things there that, I mean, should make us angry. I'm going to say something that might be unpopular this morning. But there should be angry when what is called the church spends excessively on itself. When there are so many people in the world who don't have the gospel, don't have people sharing the gospel with them, don't have Bibles, 
don't have food and are in slavery. And we're going to spend so much money on entertainment. On Christian entertainment. That might not be popular, but man, the church got to look in the mirror and go, where are our priorities? And when, when, when churches have millions of dollars and they pat themselves on the back for giving 5 to 10% to missions, meanwhile spending 90% on their creature comforts, Nah. Like, that should make us angry. There are poor people all over this world that we have the power to help, but we're more concerned about being uncomfortable. Listen. Listen, folks. If tomorrow every building every building in our nation that had the word church on it was gone. If it's a true church, it wouldn't change a thing. Because the people would meet in the field. The people would stand in the rain or in the cold or whatever it was. You're there because you love God. It wouldn't change a thing. And if it would change all this, that's not what I read in the New Testament. That's not what we read. And if churches, since the time of of the apostles, who just met wherever they could, with whoever they could, and in many places of the world, it's still that way, like, People walk for miles to meet under a tree and they stay there for hours. Because listen, you ain't gonna listen, you walk, you walk for like three or four hours, you're not looking to sing three or four songs and hear a 30-minute message. <laughs> you, you better bring more than that to the table. If you ask people to walk miles to get there. They'll meet under the tree. And, and listen, if it's for Jesus, you'll meet under the tree, you'll meet out under the blazing sun, you'll meet in the rain, you'll meet wherever. You, and it, it, the other stuff, you know, like, if we have it, praise the Lord, that's nice. But, but man, there, there's got to be some limits here. There's got to be some, some evaluation of resources. What we're doing with all of that, that's, and that's not a sidetrack here. That's not a sidetrack to this message. Because the issue is that these nobles who have consolidated power and wealth are spending it on themselves instead of helping the people that they have the power to help. And that's infuriating to Nehemiah.
And basically he says, or they should be sold to us. He's like, well, I got to go buy them too? I have to go buy them too for what you've done? I mean, he's putting it to them, folks. I mean, he's given a hard word there. And notice this, the end of verse 8. Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. I mean, what are they going to say? They're just wrong every which way you can be wrong, so they're, they're silenced. But this also says something about the work of God in their hearts and their willingness to be humble, their willingness to listen. Because I can definitely see a situation like that where on the other side they're just like, nah, I mean, you know, these people, they made a deal, you know, I mean, they had options what deals they made, and, you know, they made bad choices in life and this and that and the other thing. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, we profited, but, I mean, why are you coming after us? You see, if, if that heart isn't convicted, then there would be response. There would be response. But that heart is convicted. What, those hearts, many hearts are convicted. It's powerful. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And so there he, he tackles a couple different things. It, you know, he, he's like, really, this, it's, it's all one reason, but he, he breaks it down. You break it down to a couple reasons. One is the fear of God. Like, don't you... Don't you fear God? I mean, aren't you concerned what God was going to look down and see you taking advantage of others in this way? I mean, do you really think that that's going to go like unnoticed? And again, in, in our day and time, I'm afraid that People are just only given one side of the story. I mean, and yes, don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. God loves us. God loves you. But God is also just. And he is holy. And if you miss that, and you go, well, there's no reason why anybody should ever fear God. Are you kidding me? There is reason to fear God. He is holy. And when he gets angry, he has every right to be angry. And he has every right to execute justice when he is angry. He has a righteous anger and do something with it. So we shouldn't not walk in the fear of our God. And because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies. So you say you're giving reason for the, those that, that hate us to ridicule us, to mock us, to say, look, I mean, they say they follow God, but they've got their own, I mean, look at what they're doing even to their own people. Go back to the church today. We give reason for the enemies of the church to mock the church when resources are spent inappropriately, when people are made into superstars and then they fall.
we've got a lot to look at and go, man, what are we doing? And, and I say that even, listen, because I, I, you all know, we make a clear distinction. Like the church, the church is not a, a building. The church of, of Jesus Christ is not a building. It's a people. It's a people. The church is comprised of all who are true followers of Jesus Christ. Well, how are you a true follower of Jesus Christ? Humble at the feet of Jesus saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Like, I believe in you. You know, it's about the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Like, that's my security and my trust. That's it. Like, that's the true church of Jesus is all people who have done that. Church isn't a building. A building is a place where the church meets. A local church. Now, the reality is in the local church, in that meeting, you have people who are followers of Jesus and a lot of times you have people who are trying to figure out, do I want to be a follower of Jesus? Or you have a lot of people who are just Culturally there. Well, my grandma would want me to be there. My mom and dad would want me to be there. Or, you know, well, I'm not this, that, and the other thing, so, I mean, I guess I'll go here. But we need to be careful about what we call church. Because in reality... Again, the big C church is all, you know, the universal church is all who are followers of Jesus. Whatever name they put on it, whatever they call themselves, that's secondary. That's way secondary. I don't care if you're the first whatever, the second whatever, the third whatever. I always thought that was kind of funny, by the way. But that's just, that's another, that's another story. Don't care if what, what name you, what label you put on it. Now, in the local church is, is, you know, followers of Jesus who, you know, in a family, in a community, say, we're going to follow Jesus in this place together because we can make a difference in this place and in this world together for Jesus. We worship him, his name, and that's the first thing, worship him Together, remember him, take the bread and the cup together. Because God didn't design us to live you know, individualistic on an island. Which, you know, people, well, you know, I mean, for me, it's just like me and God. You know, I don't really need, I don't really need the church. It's just me and God. See, God disagrees. God disagrees with that. It's like, I mean, you can argue with me about that, but you actually have to argue with God and his word about that because he wants you and me to be part of a local body. Why? Because we need accountability. You understand, that's one of the reasons we're supposed to meet together is it's a built-in accountability. See, before I take that bread and that cup, I need to make sure that my vessel is clean. 
In life, I need people who know me well enough to know when I'm not doing that well. Who can give correction. Who can say, I love you enough to ask you, how are you? No, really, how are you? You see, and I just want to say this to all of us, like Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, through the Holy Spirit, have given us the manual for what he wants us to be as the church. It's called, it's called the New Testament. You want to know what the church is supposed to be? Like, read the New Testament. And you'll read there, this is what it's supposed to be, and you'll see examples when, when a local church isn't doing things correctly. There's correction, like, no, you should be doing it this way and not that way. There is a standard. And then, hey, they're doing these things really, really well. Well, so what do we learn from that? We learn what it should be. We see examples. Yeah, we want to be like that. Oh, nope, we don't want to be like that. Like, there's a standard. But I really don't believe that most church leaders in our world, but in particularly in our nation, take much time with the manual in terms of asking that question. How is it supposed to be? And, and examining the manual for that. Instead, examine church history for that. Instead, examine current models of business for that. Or current models of government for that. Or past models of government for that. But we're not told to look at those things to decide who and we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to function and all of what we're supposed to do and all those things. We're supposed to look at the Bible. We're supposed to look at the New Testament. That tells us. And that gives us a clear standard because you know, I might I, I read some business books and then do stuff that's like really contrary to what God said. I can go church history. But why am I going to do that when like, I've got the actual manual? I don't have to hope that these other people got it right. You can read your Bible and make sure you got it right. Like, do you understand the difference in that? Yet I'm just telling you, most seminaries, most groups are not sitting there and going, hey, what does the Bible say for how we should, we should function as the church of Jesus Christ? What should a lo- local church lo- look like according to the Bible? No, you 40, 50 other books. But where's the Bible? The church has to get back to the Bible. Fired up on that one. In verse 10, he says, I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. See, Nehemiah is able to say, we've redeemed people. We've bought them back. We've also done this. We've also lended money and grain. You know, without tax. Without tax. 
without tax, we have done these things. Without interest, to say, without interest, without usury, we have done this. He's able to provide his personal example. He's not asking them to do something contrary to what he himself has done. He's not saying, hey, well, I took advantage of people, but I just don't want you to. Which is great leadership in terms of most leadership is not that way today. Most leadership is, yeah, I'm the exception to the rule, but I want you all to follow the rules. We see that (coughs) everywhere. You want to find it? Just look anywhere. Right? The rules are for you, not for the people here. The rules are for the people, not for the elite or the and, and and I mean and that can be like even in really small organizations, okay? Really small things. But notice them, this in verse 12, and this is the work of God here. It says, So they said, We will restore it and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. You see, so they were told the truth. They were rebuked. They were confronted over their sin. And instead of digging their heels in and continuing in that sin, they repented. They they humbled themselves. They admitted that they were wrong. And they said, we're going to make it right. Notice this. We will restore it. They they went further than just saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. They went, I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to make it right as best as I can. Listen. Tender hearts get it. And and don't let your heart get, get cold and hard. We see it in Zacchaeus in the New Testament when he, you know, he was a tax collector and he was making himself wealthy by collecting extra tax. And he says, I'm going to give back fourfold. It would be about four times what I took. So he went back and, you know, following Jesus, yes, he was forgiven, but he also wanted to make things, make people whole, make, make things right as best he could. Like some things couldn't be undone, but what could be undone, he sought, he sought to repair it. And I'm going to say this just, to, just so that we understand that, that even a little kid can understand this. And my son, Mike, is six years old. We were talking yesterday, and we, were, we had to, it's kind of funny when you have to, um, you go into an event, you don't have cash, and you have to borrow money from your son's um, um, piggy, piggy bank. And you're like, son, we need to, okay, we, we got to go to this event. Can we borrow your, your cash, and we'll pay you back? Okay, no problem. And then his sister's complaining, well, I thought I had this money and I didn't have this money. And I just asked Micah, I was like, Micah, did you take it from her? And he goes, no, I've, I've, I've never taken, you know, money. Except for one time when I was a pre-K and there was the, um, you know, that change thing on your, on your desk. And I had taken some money from it and then, whew, so then I went and I just got all my money and I just put it all in there. <laughs> you know, and, you know, but... 
pre-K. I mean, like, so at the time, he remembers this at six from when he was four. Like, it made an impression, you know, that doing something wrong, feeling conviction for it, and then going and trying to make it right. I'm like, dude, that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's awesome. And, and that's not to, you know, up, up, like, lift him up, it, but it's just to tell us that even, like, kids can get that. And, and here you got full-grown adults just doing what they know to be wrong and doing it, but at least when they were convicted, they said, you're, you're, you're right. What we're doing was wrong. And they go to start to make it right. Now then, notice, Nehemiah's like, hey, I, you know, my, Nehemiah's smart. He's like, I appreciate this. But it's easy for everybody to talk a good game one day. Then I called the priest, verse 12. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to the promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. So Nehemiah requires an oath from them like a public oath before God that they're going to follow through and continue to do the right thing and that there will then be consequence. He's asking God, God, if these people do not follow through on their promise, I'm going to ask, he takes his cigar, man, he shakes out the dust. He's like, I'm going to ask you to shake them out like this from their properties and from their homes. I'm asking you to bring destruction on them if they don't follow through on their promise to do the right thing by other people. That's strong. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. You see, they were sincere. They weren't like, hey, wait, 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 wait. Nehemiah, that's, yeah, that's a bridge too far, buddy. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we, hope to be able, we hope to do the right thing, You see the difference, though, when there's like a true conviction? You know, and and we have this a lot with people, you know, it's like, well, you know, surrendering all to Jesus, I mean, that, that sounds, that's something I'll think about. I mean, that sounds like kind of a, sounds like an idea. Versus those who are just like, yeah, I mean, it only makes sense that just, I got, I just got to surrender everything to Jesus. I'll just read verses 14 through 19. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. We stop there just for a minute because, again, context. So, you know, King Artaxerxes, you know, he's got tons of different people groups that are now under his, his authority as king of the Persian Empire. And so he sets up governors in each place. So those governors are there to, you know, they need to do what the king has ordered, 
but it's a position of power and many people in those situations so they're the one in power and they kind of they tend to take advantage of the situation to build their own wealth listen read any history in any place like in, in any type of system like this like this is just this is what happens Nehemiah is that rare soul who say I didn't take advantage of that position I didn't make myself wealthy out of that I didn't do all this extra and then he says you know he's giving this is written later you know he's writing you know the account of it and so here you know we're we're still in the middle of the building the wall you know this 52 day process but he goes out big pictured like because I was there for these 12 years and in that entire time like he's connecting it to the story I asked them to do what's right and the entire time that I was there I did what was right that he himself was consistent with what he had asked of the people that he didn't take advantage of the situation that's powerful his testimony his consistent way of life is huge and he says I also continue to work on this wall and we did not buy any land all my servants were gathered there for the work he says you know we had a purpose and the purpose wasn't to come and to establish a little a place for ourselves the purpose was to do this work for the Lord and for the people so he didn't do a lot of things to get himself sidetracked from his task he stayed focused. He stayed focused. In verse 17, he says, And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. So he's basically saying, we had a lot of people. I mean, you're going to feed 150 people on the regular. <laughs> you know, it's going to take a lot of resources. He receives resources as his role as um, governor for um, that area. He receives, some, he receives provision for that, but then he doesn't go and take more, you know, from the people. He just... He's like basically saying, I'm good. I'm taken care of. For the, what my responsibility is and who I have to serve, you know, it's enough. Where other people will said, hey, so what I get from Artaxerxes, like it's got to go out to all these folks and I don't have a lot left over and I feel like I should be building a lot of wealth. That's the, that's the difference. But he asks, he says, remember me, my God, for good, according to all I have done for this people. And he's able to say what he, you know, before the Lord, honestly, not just before man, but before God, that's the most important, that he has done what is right. That he has done what is right. So just as we conclude this morning, just want to remember that, you know, Nehemiah had his role. There's, there's the work of God in the hearts of the people, in the situation that you can't remove. There's, there's the fact, there's this huge fact that Nehemiah is with God and he is seeking to do the will of God and to walk in his ways 
and he is close in his fellowship and communion with God. Like that's, that's where we start. Because without that, Nehemiah is just like beating against the wind. If there's not the work of God, if there's not the closeness of Nehemiah to God and his, his personal walk, his fellowship with God, like, forget, we don't have a story here. We don't have a book of Nehemiah in the Bible. Like, that's the, that's the prerequisite part. Lots of life, there's prerequisites. Not just in academics. You want to start a certain job. What is a prerequisite that you have this experience or you've done these things or you have this reference or you have, what? It, okay? We get it. Prerequisites. But prerequisites for doing the work of God is to be with God. He understood the situation correctly according to God's way. He understood what the standard of God required. It was not ambiguous for him. He didn't have to sit when he heard that situation and going, hmm, is that okay or not okay? Is what the people doing here, is it right, is it wrong? No, he, he knew because he knew the word. He knew the law, right? And, then, and he knew from his own personal connection to God and that those agreed. So he didn't have to spend there and go, you know, let me look into this case for the next few months. Now he knew. And so we need to know the word of God and know what is expected of us and, and what God, how God wants us to live. We want to know how God wants us to live in this even in this present day and age, like Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, like understood correctly and properly and in context. But if you have that and that is just ingrained, if we have it and it's ingrained in us and that's how we act and live, we can be confident. You know, we read the Gospels, we see Jesus. Okay, how do you want us to live? We read the letters to the churches. Like we, we've been given the manual. The better we know it, the better off we are. The more time at the feet of Jesus, the better. He had moral and ethical authority because of how he lived his own life. So he wasn't asking the people to do something radically different. So if I, if I, if I you know, it's kind of like, I just, let's just make, I mean, made this personal a couple ways this morning. But I'm like, you know, the church, like, we really got to get out there and tell people about Jesus. If, I'm, if the leaders in the church, if elders in the church aren't out there telling people about Jesus, then what do we expect? You can't, I mean, we can't live one thing and then ask for another thing. But I do want to note. Nowhere does the scripture tell us Nehemiah was perfect. It doesn't say he was perfect. In fact, in chapter 1, it starts with him confessing his sins and the sins of his fathers. 
Peter failed. Jonah failed. Like, they failed. I, I was, you know, I, I had a failure on Friday that I put on our, our Facebook thing. Um, and I'll explain that. But I was, I was encouraged and, and convinced this morning, just this, um, listen to a little preaching on the way here, and it's like, you know, preachers always want to talk about Peter's failures and Jonah's failures and other people's failures and David's failures, and we just studied first and second Samuel, but not their own. And, and, and we try to be transparent, but it's not, it's not always easy. It's not always easy. Um, so Friday, I had this opportunity. I'm in this store, and a guy helping me. I need some. I'm, I've been hurting my feet playing basketball and running shoes, and uh, so I go like need a pair of shoes. And this guy helps me out, and young guy, and we're talking, and conversation proceeds, and um, just seems like a sharp young man, and start talking about life and. Uh, so I asked him, I said, you know, it seems like you're trying to do things the right way. So I said, let's, let's just suppose, you know, you and I both walk out of this store and we get run over by a truck. We're both dead. We're before God. And God says, why should I let you in, into heaven? What, what do you say? He says, well, I mean, you know, I mean, faith, I mean, faith got me through high school. And, you know, this far in my life, I mean, faith. You know, and, and we hear the word faith. Faith's a great word, right? But but we got we got to have a little more than like faith in question mark. And so I said, well, well, you know that's that's good. As a, that sounds good. But what if God says, well, you know, you agree you've done things that are wrong, right? He's oh yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I said well, what if God said, well, what do we, what do we do with your your sin? How can I let you in with this with this sin that you have? He goes, ooh. That's that's a good question. I I have to think about that. And then he he goes, "What would you say?" Now that's that's a really good question. <laughs> you know, because I've had a, a lot of time to think about that. I've had some more years than you to think about that. Um, and so you know, I was able to share the gospel with him, just super open. And uh, it was it was fantastic. I felt you know I felt great. And uh, later on, I'm like you know didn't make it to hadn't made it to the gym too much you know recently. I'm gonna make it happen. I was kind of debating it because I was I was tired. I didn't want to. I was like I'm gonna go play at least a couple games. Go up there and then I got uh, in a little. There was, there, there was something that happened that we just say it was, it was unjust. And I, I kind of let it get to me a little bit. And then what I didn't expect, I went afterwards to kind of extend the olive branch for, uh, for you know, to kind of just smooth, you know, say I, I was wrong and, and, and how I handled that, my side of it. And so let's just, you know, reconcile that. And then sometimes you put the olive branch out there and then somebody takes it and goes, thank you. And, you know, like, just like snaps it in half and sets it on the ground and then kind of stumps on it. So that's, that's, that's what happened. And um, I wasn't, honestly, I, I was not well enough prepared. I just was not prepared for that, 
that response, which then I was like angry and I kind of gotten off. And then I went like, whew, then I was angry. And then I was angry. So I just told him to shut up a couple times and walked out of the gym. Um, and it's, I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that at all. Um, but I, I was thinking afterwards, it's like, of course, there, you know, there's the good, and then there's the temp, there's the trial, the temptation, the you know thing there where it was an opportunity to turn the other cheek. It was an opportunity to turn it a second time, and I didn't do it. Um, and and that's important because. You know, there's, there's the, you know, that person is a human being made in the image of God that I need to love and care for, regardless of, of what they do. Like, I'm still 100% responsible for my actions and for my words. I, I want to say that again. Regardless of what the other person does on the other side, I am 100% responsible for my actions and for my words, and for my attitude, like I'm responsible. You know when, and, and I'd like for each of you to look in the mirror and say that today. Regardless of what someone else has done, my response, I am a hundred percent responsible for my response. I'm gonna own it, folks. Gotta own it. And. Um, but there's also other people that, though it wasn't loud, I mean, it was actually a pretty cool, I mean, I did not, you know, voices were not raised, there was no shouting, there was none of that, which often happens on a basketball court. I mean, just to be real, I mean, like, basketball brings the worst out of people. It can bring good out of people, but it can also bring the absolute worst out of people. But there was, there was none of that. I mean, it was, it was like, it was very muted. Still, other people are there. They see conflict. And they see how I handled that conflict. That's not great. You know. Been there for a long time trying to do things that are a certain way. You know, and it's just a reminder in life. Like, learn from it. You know, you can you can do a lot and you can and it takes a long time to to do things a certain way. And you can undermine that in the snap of your finger. You can undermine that in as long as it takes somebody to tell somebody to shut up. Like you can undermine it real quick. So what I'm what I'm trying to communicate this morning is that we don't have to be perfect, but we certainly have to strive to do things the way of Jesus. And when we don't, we have to own it. If we're going to have any moral and ethical authority in how we live our lives. Because there's an issue there, because there's a way that I expect my kids to learn to deal with conflict, especially as they get older. Well, how, I mean, I have to be consistent to try to do it Jesus' way, and when I don't, I have to own that and admit it as an example to them, so that they're not sitting there going, 
well, I see this as, as hypocrisy and this is a game. Same thing isn't true in the church. Like, we have to own it when we make mistakes because when we sin, when we do things that are wrong, because we're not sitting here... It shouldn't be one of those deals, you know, where, where people just they put on their bus clothes and they put on their smile and they come somewhere for an hour and pretend that their life is good. That's not church. That, that's, that's a social game. That's a social game. So we, got, we need to be transparent. We need to help each other. We need to ask for help. We need to pray for one another a lot. Because when we're trying to, to share the love of Jesus in our community and in our world, there's going to come with that temptations and trials and difficulties and obstacles from without and from within. And those inward obstacles are often within our own hearts. See, that's the other side of this. Those outward obstacles we know. There's a real enemy, the devil. There's a real enemy, the world, the world systems, the world ways. There are people who are antagonistic to faith in Christ. All that we understand, but there are also internal obstacles. There's internal obstacles in the church of a a misfocus and of a not wanting to um, do things according to the way of Jesus and to be like sold out for the Lord. But there's also the obstacles in our own hearts that get in the way. Our own pride. And really what that issue came down on Friday was my pride was offended. My pride felt disrespected. And so I reacted in the flesh instead of in the spirit. But it was it was when I when before the Lord, like the issue was my pride. It was my pride. So those internal obstacles that we talked about from Nehemiah, my encouragement this morning is to give some evaluation to the internal obstacles in our own hearts. Start there. Start there. Then evaluate the obstacles that we face perhaps as a church. If we have any of those internally. What's my role in that? Things seem pretty peaceful right now. I mean, things are peaceful. But, hey, we want to be more about reaching more people for Jesus. We want to be more about true, authentic worship of the Lord. We're, we got any obstacles with that? Let's, let's, let's remove some obstacles. Obstacles in the world, more obvious. But let's start with those obstacles in our own hearts. Because that's the biggest place of battle. It really is, folks. That's the biggest place of battle. We can talk about all this stuff out here. But what about what's in here? What about what's inside? Your own heart. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, I, I pray this morning... 
uh, just just come and thank you that you are forgiving God and that you um, definitely have us have for us a way you want us to live. You've given that to us most of all through your Son Jesus. And Lord, um, examine our hearts this morning. We pray and help us to live for you with sincere sincerity of hearts and and Lord, so that we would have a moral and ethical authority from which to call your church to your standard and to call out evil in our world as evil. But Lord, we know it has a start in our own hearts. We know without that, it's just games. And so Lord, we ask, we humbly ask you to help us. Lord, we pray that we know your gospel. We would pray for each person in this room and would know you personally through your son Jesus. And that we would live in that fellowship, in that relationship. And Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross and that as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we give you thanks for what you've done for us. We humble ourselves before you. We remember you. And we ask for your help to live worthy of the calling with which we were called. For your glory and for your honor, dear Jesus. In your precious name.